I'm George Walker. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk with artists, scholars, writers, get to know the person a little bit. Our guest today is Willis Barnstone, who's a poet, translator, biblical scholar, memoirist, anthologist, artist. He's a distinguished professor emeritus of comparative literature and Spanish at Indiana University. He's uh, been a member of the East Asian Languages and Culture, the Institute for Biblical and Literary Studies, started film studies at Indiana, initiated courses in international popular songs and lyrics, and Asian and Western poetry. He's four times been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, had four Book of the Month Club selections. You've had a long career, really, in, in so many things, and you're always discovering new things that you want to work with. Uh, I understand that, that actually you started as a painter? I did. Uh, back in Greece, at the age of 21, I was a student there at the University of Paris, and, and a French-Swiss painter moved in with us, a very close friend, and he was my first instructor. I should say my main instructor. And Ellie Barnstone was, who also studied painting when I was doing literature at Yale. She did her three years of graduate work, and of course she's the main instructor too. And I understand that there's a hiatus in your painting career. The garage burnt down and everything disappeared, and for 30 years I did nothing, but I began began to do a little bit afterwards. Now I've illustrated a, about a dozen books and yeah so we have the advantage once again of uh, of your work there and i understand that you uh, chose a rather restricted media to work with well at the beginning i i did the usual oils and gesso and i mean d- different kinds of things but now i do mainly dry brush and, and ink sometimes pencil mm-hmm and I noticed that not only do you illustrate your books, but sometimes you even illustrate your talks. I was just looking over the notes for uh, your recent talk to the uh, American Literary Translators Association. Yes. I love to do portraits, I mean, of, of the people who are dead. As I like to read the works of people who are dead, I, uh, I'm much more interested in earlier things. Not that I don't know or love the contemporary, but I feel we're lost if we don't know the past. Part of of knowing the past for you has been really working as a translator of uh, some people from the far past and some people from really uh, your own present. Well, the past would be Sappho and the Greek lyric poets and Heraclitus, the philosopher. I did his complete fragments, but Yes, and my Chinese has always been shaky, but I did spend a year in Beijing with uh, one of my graduate students there when I was a Fulbright and translated Wang Wei, who is the 8th century Robert Frost, the great poet of, uh, of China. I did that with my son, Tony, who was living with me, Tony Barnstone. Mm-hmm. So the distant past and some of the present and uh, some languages that in, in some ways... Uh, you really worked on just to translate? Well, I had to get around Beijing and and the Gobi Desert, so I needed some Chinese too, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I had to eat. <laughs> and I remember it wasn't sufficient when we first arrived, and Tony tried to draw a picture of a noodle on his hand but he, to see if there was any place open <laughs> to eat. But no, I love languages, and I never know in which one I'm going to dream. Really? Absolutely. It depends on the conversation I have. It could. The main ones I, I, I know really at ease, my stepmother's Mexican. I grew up partly in Mexico. So Spanish and French, I've been devoted to all my life and going to be published my second book in, that I wrote in French. And modern Greek, of course, and... I read a bunch of other languages. Now, you had a long academic career. Some academics write academics, and some academics actually do write novels, short stories, poetry, Mm, translation. Tell us a little bit about how that worked with your early career. Everything I did in the academy, 
I found an enormous help in every way to any creative interest, aspiration I had. I was able to teach the courses I, I loved, modern European poetry, East Asian, Western and Asian poetry, etc. No, it, there was never a conflict. Only at graduate school at Yale, I must say, I was so into the library for two years without ever coming out. I didn't do much writing, but that was the only time. So you found the the halls of academe uh, a, a welcome place, really. Wonderful, for you in many wonderful, ways. wonderful. Terribly stimulating. Uh huh. I think those people who are blocked because of that are blocked for other reasons. But How you, can you read John Donne, teach John Donne, and be undone by Donne? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mannerist writer in the only writing in the manner of, but I do like the idea of multiple voices. I'd love to change. Change is like ecstasy, ecstasis to be outside yourself. Stasis is death in a way. That's why Buddhism is very frightening to me. Too much stasis. We're talking with Willis Barnstone on Profiles, and we're talking a little bit about <clears throat> his early career, academia, which he found quite comfortable, where he worked uh, as a teacher, writing poetry, and were you translating at that time as well? Uh, quite early. Uh, uh, my first book, which came out in 1951, which was a book of poems, poems called Poems of Exchange, including six poems by Antonio Machado, so already. the Spanish poet, whom Later, I wrote my dissertation on and named my son for Don Antonio, Tony. <laughs> when you work with an author, it really becomes uh, entwined with your life. It's family. <laughs> <laughs> They're our closest friends. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Were you writing poetry in Spanish at this point also? I've written some poems in Spanish, a dozen, but, and it should have been the language I wrote in, but no, I, about 12 or 13 years ago, I went to France regularly, and uh, a friend of mine, I stayed on his houseboat for a few days, and I don't know, for four years I stopped writing in English, I only wrote in French. And it would tremendously help my English poetry afterwards. Four Get, years of French poetry helps your English poetry? Well, yes, because, you see, you learn. You always learn. And it, it, there's a, you know, if you read Apollinaire and Baudelaire and Villon, and you, you, there's a fluency. There's a, I mean, if you live in, in Spain, you're going to be enriched if you write in Spanish. Now, one of the things that surprised me was that you then decided that you had to translate your own French poems. Well, that was the decision of the publisher. He, he said, translate. I said, I can't, but he was much taller than I am, rather <laughs> imposing. <laughs> so I took six months off. I'd like to ask you to, to actually read one of your French poems and then uh, so that we can hear the sounds and the rhythms. Mm -hmm. And then I'd love to hear the English translation. Well, if it's okay, I think it might be better to read it in English first because people, a lot of people know French, but if they're helped by a knowledge of the English first, they're able to follow the French better. Okay, let's see if I can put my eyes on. Uh, this is the title poem of the book, and it's called Dawn Café in Paris. I sleep. You'll see it's much better in French. That's <laughs> I, I can hide, hide my inabilities there. I sleep and already live tomorrow. Must be Monday. No, a beautiful negligent Sunday morning. And I dance with God, a beautiful woman who tells me mouth to mouth in my soul the banal secrets of my confusion and why I can't sleep, why forced to, I get up from sleep to speak to you in the black in hours before the cafe of dawn who says me, surely I'm wrong. I kiss the mouth of God. She is soft and doesn't blame me that I die without hope. She assures me that her presence 
isn't necessary. And I love her, devastated by her remoteness. I'm cold, remorseless winter lies on my knees. I kiss a phantom, warm. She is smiling. Café de l'Aube à Paris. Je dors et déjà vu demain. Lundi sera, mais non, c'est un beau dimanche matin négligent, et je danse avec Dieu, une belle femme qui me dit bouche à bouche dans mon âme les secrets banals de ma confusion. Et pourquoi je ne peux pas dormir Pourquoi obligé je me lève du sommeil pour te parler dans le noir des heures avant le café de l'aube qui me sauve sans doute Je me trompe, j'embrasse la bouche des dieux. Elle est douce et ne me méprise pas que je meurs sans espoir. Elle m'assure que sa présence n'est pas nécessaire et je l'aime dévastée par son dur éloignement. J'ai froid, l'hiver sans remords, j'y sur mes genoux, j'embrasse un fantôme, chaude, elle sourit. It's much more frightening in French than I think it is in, Eng in English. A poem by Willis Barnstone, originally in French, translated by Willis. You've written uh, that one of the things about translating yourself was that it was very hard, but also that uh, you feel a little freer to... Uh, 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 <laughs> to make changes. Yes. Well, actually, it's a wonderful balancing act because you you write in French. You, you you're not worried about any laws of translation. Did you know it? Is it close? Is it far? Dare you do this? After all, ask the author. And who is the author? I'm not sure. And then you find something in English that works better and you go back and tinker with it in French and actually Borges was doing that in, 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 in Buenos Aires we were working together on poems and I was doing the English and he said well maybe, maybe I should leave that out in the Spanish You have published uh, accounts of, of your talks with Borges uh, I remember in 1980 when mm -hmm. you brought Borges mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. and there there this person was, uh, you were there, he was there sitting in a chair, there was a, a young woman who was uh, uh, taking care with him. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. three of you in this enormous hall, mm -hmm. and it seemed that every time that Borges heard one of his poems, he would sort of think, and then he'd say, you know, when I was writing that, I thought this, but now as I'm hearing it, I'm thinking this. He just seemed totally open to uh, to the experience of his own work. Well, Borges, whatever he said was funny, whatever he said was literary, whatever he said was paradoxical. He said the best, best words on translation than anyone ever, ever thought up in this marvelous, perverse way. He says, you know, sometimes the original isn't faithful to the translation. <laughs> <laughs> Only Borges could dream up that. Tell us how you first uh, encountered and met Borges. I know he was so important uh, in your life, and you were very important in his. Well, I was doing a, a book for Grove Press of his selected poems, and uh, how did it happen? Oh, yeah, well, I was asked by Juan Marichal at Harvard to arrange a poetry reading at the Y, at the Poetry Center in New York, and uh, we were there with Merwin and a bunch of people and re reading, and I um, I met him, and we had a wonderful chat. I became a Fulbright professor, went to uh, Argentina, lived across the street from him. We saw each other virtually every day. We traveled all over. I was able, with IU's wonderful assistance, to bring him once for three days, once for a month. He's blind, and when he entered Wittenberger Auditorium, it was totally jammed, and I said, boy, I've never seen this place so, so crowded. He said, neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> 
he was he, he was l'enfant terrible. Oh my goodness! Yes. And I know you worked with him in a number of different ways over the years. Uh, May I tell you the last time I spoke to him, oh, I was in China. The Argentine ambassador to China uh, managed to get. We were able to get him an invitation to go to China. He was so happy a few years before when he went to to uh, Japan. So I called him from Beijing to Buenos Aires, and I said, Bortes, would you like to visit China? He said, Bardstone, do you think I'm a complete fool? Would I not want to go to China? And then he lists off about 10 books. Uh, and, of course, anything he read, he was there. He was, he was a photo man. And... Uh, and so then the Argentine ambassador went to his house and the, and the attendant there said, the doctor said he's dying of cancer, he can't go. And so six months later he was in Geneva where he wanted to die and he uh, married virtually on his deathbed and um, he said this is the happiest day of his life, which may be one of those paradoxes. He was indeed a person of paradox, wasn't yeah, he? Yes. And, and great incapable good humor. of, oh, incapable and sad and solitary. He would often say, Don't think, Barnstone, that, you know, I'm all smiles. We really should probably fill people in just a little bit about mm-hmm. Borges's uh, career, both as, uh, as a political and an artistic figure. Well, he began as a or red, as we could call it, Mvrojo. <laughs> and uh, he was very much interested in all kinds of radical causes, which in those days, it was whether you're for the larger middle class and people or the landowners. And eventually, when Perón, as Hitler and Mussolini, who would have been elected, who uh, was elected, he became further to the right. But he always was for democracy, but he realized that democracy can also bring us bad people. Uh, During the Dirty War, he was criticized for not speaking out. He was very proud of not reading the newspapers for 25 years, uh, totally in the past. I have somewhat imitated that or tried to. But once he found out, he went so far as disowning himself from all military, his own military ancestors who were the founders of Argentina. He went to the court every day when the people were brought up to trial afterwards for what they had done to the people of Argentina. I think his past is noble. Mm-hmm. We got along because he didn't like flatterers, and I was always teasing him. <laughs> I was always saying, Borges... You certainly are the worst thing that God created. And he, I couldn't agree with you more, Barnstone. (laughs) I wonder if you could read uh, something you translated from Borges. I think I can. There is a poem by Borges, and it's a marvelous poem. It's about his mother's death. I'll read a few lines in Spanish just so it's called El Remordimiento, which means the regret or the remorse. He cometido el peor de los pecados que un hombre puede cometer. No he sido feliz. Que los graciares del olvido, etc. Here's the translation into English. Remorse. I have committed the worst sin of all that a man can commit. I have not been happy. Let the glaciers of oblivion drag me and mercilessly let me fall. My parents bred and bore me for a higher faith in the human game of nights and days, for earth, for air, for water, and for fire. I let them down. I wasn't happy. My ways have not fulfilled their youthful hope. I gave my mind to the symmetric stubbornness of art in all its webs of pettiness. They willed me bravery. 
I wasn't brave. It never leaves my side since I began this shadow of having been a brooding man. What a sonorous poet he is. The last lines were, Me legaron valor, no fui valiente, no me abandona. Siempre está a mi lado la sombra de haber sido un desdichado. <laughs> what music? Willis Barnstone reading from his translation of the Argentine writer Jorge Borges. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, some of the things that you've worked with as a translator. You've talked a little bit about Sappho and a little mm-hmm. bit about more modern things that mm-hmm. you've worked with. Mm-hmm. What what pointed you toward uh, biblical scholarship and toward the eventual publication of what's called the Restored New Testament, a new translation, commentary, including, by the way, the Gnostic Gospels as well. It's a question I ask myself often. There was a wonderful man in the Spanish department, Miguel Miguel Enguidanos, a a Spaniard from Valencia, who was actually involved very much with Borges, too. But I loved the poems of St. John of the Cross, San Juan de la Cruz, The Dark Night of the Soul. I I did a few translations. And he always, always called me Pajarito, Little Bird. And he said, Pajarito, translate it, do a book. I, you put it out. And I suppose that was my first... I wrote a book called Poetics of Translation, History, Theory, and Practice. And, and then before that, I did Poetics of Ecstasy. Well, there are all kinds of ecstasies. There's secular ecstasy, there's political ecstasy, there's anger, there's dream, there's otherness, and there's religious. And to me, it's the same experience with different vocabulary. It doesn't matter whether it's God, nothingness, whatever. So since I majored in French and philosophy in college, I, I was always into these thought things. And I, I wrote extensively about mysticism, uh, East and West. And eventually I got back to, uh, to the Bible. And uh, I wanted to correct the identity theft of all the people in the New Testament who were Jews. Somehow, Jesus was circumcised, as we sing in Handel, on the eighth day. It says so in Luke. And yet, none of these characters are Jews. Only Judas, which means the Jew, was a Jew. Pretty disgusting. And why? Well, everybody, not at all a Freudian, but everybody in the Abrahamic religions has to kill the father figure. But it was too sad. The Jews have always gotten along very well with the Muslims because they they weren't the enemy. It was the Christians against the Islam. So I began to translate the New Testament. Uh, I was, it, it happened actually not because of me, but my editor at Random House who did my Greek lyric poetry said, Willis, you know Greek. Would you translate the New Testament for us? I said, Okay, I fell down in my head and I said, okay. He said, you know anyone who could do the Quran? Just as casual as that. <laughs> and then he got fired, but I continued. Life okay. is an accident, isn't it? It can, it has them, doesn't it? It is. <laughs> Talking with Willis Barnstone uh, about the restored New Testament. In talking about translation, one of the things that you point out that is is that uh, in some cases, either a translator or a poet has actually perhaps uh, created the epic quality of a language. You may you oh, yes. say, for instance, that the English language in some ways has just this, this terrific example in the King James Version Absolutely. and in, in Shakespeare, yes. that in Italian there are yes. people who, who sort of set the language yes. in Spain as well. Right. I'm curious, did you have hope when you were working on this yes. that the particular way in which you envisioned the language in 2013 or 2012, that to some degree you might be creating a monument to the language at this point? Oh, dear. Well, let me put it this way. This is 
the King James was a literary translation, so was the Tyndale 75 years earlier. Since then, they've been translated in some wonderful ways, but certainly not in a literary way. The marvelous metaphors of the King James become interpretive abstractions. I leave that behind. I go back to the, although it's 500 years ago, the language is still modern because English hasn't changed that much since then, uh, relatively speaking. A hundred years before, it changed radically. And uh, yes, I, I, I would like to think, at least for biblical, uh, I, I think very soon they will stop calling Jesus by his Greek-Latin name and call him Yeshua. It's the same as Joshua. They'll call Mary, Miriam, Maria is a, is a Greek name, and so forth and so on. It's, it's not James or Santillana in Spanish or Jaime in Spanish. It's Yaakov, Jacob. Uh-huh. We, we have to call the people by their names, and the Greeks as well. It's not Andrew, it's Andreas. We can say that. It's not Pilate, it's Pilatus, as we do with Chinese names increasingly. And then you have restored the identity of the people who are not European, but come from the Near East. Mm-hmm. The Bible, all the Bibles come from the Near East. Now, you mentioned the notion that uh, that the King James was a literary translation, mm-hmm. that since then we've had different approaches, and that this once again is a literary translation, and then you said you talked about the metaphor, and I, yes. I'm curious, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Well, I'd have to come up with an example, and at this point my head is frozen. But um, I I can say that it's not only metaphor that I've followed. You see, when they did the King James, they they did not lineate what was poetry as poetry. And the New Testament has never been lineated until my translation. But it's all, none of it was meant to be read. That was an invention at the time of St. Augustine, reading silently. They were all chanted. Nothing in the Old Testament and New Testament was not, and when you hear it in the church, at least in the Greek Orthodox Church, in the synagogues, they're not, they, they sing them. And it should sing in English. And, for example, Revelation or Apocalypsis in Greek, Apocalypse, is the great epic poem. You don't want to put the Song of Songs in prose. Solomon would trip on his nose if you did. Poor Solomon. Though they're actually Egyptian love songs translated into Hebrew. Uh-huh. Yeah, five centuries after Solomon. Egyptian love songs translated into Hebrew. Yes, I mean Solomon of the of the eleventh, tenth century. Uh, well, all the names of the Old Testament, and New Testament are sort of epigraphical, meaning they're 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 later thought. They're essentially anonymous. We have Isaiah one, Isaiah two, etc. Job one, two, three, four, five, etc. But uh, Saint Paul or Paul is definitely historical. Seven of his fourteen letters are authentic. He is the most authentic of uh, the, the one name we have who was for real. Talking with Willis Barnstone uh, in mm-hmm. particular about the restored New Testament. But I restored the poetry is what I wanted to say. Ah. Both of the Old Testament and New Testament. My next book with Norton will be Poets of the Bible. And that will include uh, things from, from what Christians call the Old Testament? Right, from what Christians call the Old Testament, for what the Jews call Torah. You're actually in Bloomington for the American Literary Translation Association mm-hmm. meeting, mm-hmm. and uh, you did a talk that mm-hmm. I think wanted to encourage and say what wonderful people translators are, mm-hmm. and at the same time to suggest that the best translators are also the best poets, and that there's a back and forth between translation yeah. and poetry, a little bit like your own example of uh, writing in uh, French and translating yourself. Absolutely. You got the key to it. Well, you don't necessarily have to be a poet outside of the act of translation, but during the act of translation, you must be a poet. 
because I'm talking not now of prose, but of poetry. Uh, the same would you have to be a prose writer, let's say, a fiction writer if you translate a novel at the moment. And historically, the great translators have been Shelley and Goethe and Mandelstam in Russia and so forth, Robert Lowell, all, all my contemporaries and afterwards too. They're all poets. If, if, you, if you are not a poet, as Robert Lowell cruelly says, uh, your works will be seen to be done by a taxidermist, and the result will be a stuffed frog. <laughs> he could be cruel, couldn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> in the talk that you gave in Bloomington, you actually even cited some poets that you felt some of their translations had come out almost literally in some of their own poems. Well, yes, I I mentioned James Wright, but uh, my belief is, and I think really most people would concur, we're not just influenced by the mood of the foreign language, by remembering the music of the foreign language. We must in the act of translation, create a language we've never done before, and then we become influenced by our own creation. So it's it, this is this interesting step. Being forced to translate gives you another breath, gives you another example, another possibility you would never have come upon if you had not been forced to by accident. Over the years, you've translated, you've uh, written, you've Mm. uh, written books about translation Mm. and continue to work as a creative artist. Mm. There are some of your books that uh, I think everyone thinks a little (laughs) bit about. You recently mentioned to me that uh, Funny Ways of Staying Alive is being (laughs) issued in paperback. And I said, I thought Funny Ways of Being Alive should always have been in paperback. It's that kind of book. Thank you. And I wondered if we could get you to read a few excerpts from that you Funny have... Ways of Staying Alive. Sure. I didn't pick out any particular oh. ones because I found as I went through it, I kept thinking, oh, this would be nice. Gee, I'd like that. And wouldn't that be fun as well? Well, uh, I'll try. They're funny and they're tragic. We could start with uh, a man with a gun is a barrel of fun. <laughs> But wait, after that, there's the next poem. Comments on that poem. Okay, okay. Oh, don't trifle with a rifle. Love the bomb and love you. lose your mom. Change your sm- socks or smell of locks. If you hate death, don't hold your breath. Look at the stars. Sigh. You cannot own the sky. Ways of stress. When you lose your keys, your options freeze. It's nice to chat with the mechanic who's not satanic. A summer with a plumber is a bummer. When your spouse is a louse, don't be a mouse. If sex is stress, don't undress. And on each page, there are drawings that that aren't quite figures, but sometimes yes. I think I see people right. in them. Yes, you're right. In Greece, village walls are white in the middle of the night. If you are in great pain, wait for rain. Out of the gloomiest night, daybreak is white. If you want this book to end, love me and your friend, mug to mug, hug. That's very nice to remember, mug to mug, hug. If you're alone, don't moan. Read this and don't be blue. We are two. A little tricky. All little excerpts from Funny Ways of Staying Alive. It's not my usual tone, but then there is no usual tone. Well, you, you, you heard the, <laughs> the other poem. <laughs> I've, I've heard a number of your tones. I, I, you know, I was born in Maine, but I, I'm a wise guy from New York, I guess. Speaking of wise guy of New York, 
sitting between us is is Stickball on 88th Street. Yes. And uh, I had a friend who had grown up in Brooklyn. Yeah. And he once told me, do you know what a broom is? And I said, yeah. And he said, no, you don't. And I said, well, what is it? He said, it's a stickball bat with hair. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I I lived in New York, uh, grew up on Riverside Drive. Babe Ruth lived upstairs. Uh, it was an interesting area. And I, I was working one summer at the University of Texas, Austin, as a visiting professor in Comp Lit. And I said to one of the other people, writer, I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'll play the piano. I'm exhausted. What are you going to do, Willis? I said, you know, I may try to recover my childhood, which is a complete blank. I went back to a nice house I was sharing with my daughter, Aliki. And as what happens to most people, I suddenly had an idea from childhood to my father's terrible death of suicide when I was 18. Funny, tragic, and I wrote down 34 titles. And I said, well, I've got the titles, I might as well fill them in. For 13 days, I did nothing but write. I invented, I believe, a form for it. Six words and six words, indented four words and four words, an obstacle is good to keep you somewhat in check. And in 13 days, virtually no sleep, no food. I wasn't hungry or sleepy at the end. I finished. And I, with many books, I have to wait many years to find the right publisher. I waited 37 years, and it came out a year ago. Could we hear one of those? Sure. Sure. I'm trying to make it clean. <laughs> the building. Babe Ruth lives on the other side of the court. His brother-in-law jumped from the 18th story into the handball area where we play until tenants got angry. I heard the thump. I was in bed. The babe gave me a baseball diploma. The same elevator man, Joe, who slapped me for not being nice to Jerry, wasn't true, took me up to the babes for the photo that came out in the mirror Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoons, we hear Father Coglin and Hitler live, shrieking on the radio. Everyone hates Hitler. When there's a strike, new men keep billy clubs by the doors. I like the scabs as much as Rudy and Joe outside to whom we bring sandwiches. I heard Rudy got hit trying to bust in. They almost broke his head. It's funny for men to ride me up the elevator. I always run downstairs. They slow me down as I race for the outside into the North Pole, wind, and the gully. But often I spend the afternoon in a corner of the elevator, going up and down in the tired coffin. When no one else is reading, they let me close the brass gate. I do it like a grown-up stiff a poem from Stickball on 88th Street 37 years ago. So that takes us back to the 70s. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Could we have one more from that? Sure. I wonder if 34 I... titles, 13 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll read the last poem, which I have not read uh, for many years. It's called The Call. I'm with you in New York at a hotel. You're in bad shape. Just a year ago in Colorado, we all walked with the wirehead bouncing on the sidewalk. You put in a, a line direct to Denver and were to civilize the world with silver goblets. You've moved too quickly again. We talk about it through the night. You've dropped so low. I seem to be your father now. 
I speak firmly, telling you to resist. Why do I speak to you this way? Something prods me. Perhaps that's what you need. But we do talk well. You know, as always, I love you, and I know what I am to you. I have to go back to Maine to finish up the term. I don't like to leave you. Now I'm the only one of us, you see. We say goodbye, and I promise to see you soon. Back at school, I hope you will pull money out of the sky. You will somehow fight and feel better. It's finals here, and I'm cramming. My roommate Bernie from Austria tells me not to worry so much, but he's pre-med, works like hell too. The phone rings. Dad, can you come down right away to New York? You must be crazy, I say. This is exam week. I'll mess up the whole term. I am... Annoyed, I was surprised that I am impatient, but something prom prods me. Please come. Dad, I can't. Please wait one day. I'll finish the finals. Are you okay? We talk some, but I can't remember words. He is in bad shape. I shout at his sadness, which is piercing me. I'll see you soon. I will leave tonight. I say, click. I ring back to say what train I'll take to the city. Silence must be out. Next day, he's gone. Days go by. I look for him. I call every place. We come back late, finally, when I go back to Bowdoin. Didn't, couldn't find him in New York. Someone's been trying to reach you all afternoon. I call back. My dad's assistant in Colorado. Your father left New York for Mexico. Then he flew here. He jumped around noon from the top of the building. Are you coming to the funeral? I leave for New York. No one else is going out west except a business friend, Jack, who is loyal, although stuck with debts. They tell me he folded his top coat neatly and put his felt hat alongside before he swan-dived and forgot to float back up through the warm May air. The final poem in a set of poems inspired in part by... My father's terrible death of suicide when I was 18. The whole book is that. Is that. And I've written another book that's coming out in spring called Moon Book and Sun Book, which I wrote largely in a very short stay in Boston. It's coming out with Tupelo Press. And they're going to, well, I shouldn't say this, but they're going to celebrate me in a panel at AWP, and, and they wanted to get it out quickly to try to sell a few books. <laughs> We've had a chance to listen to a little bit of some of the, the lighter poems, some of the darker poems. Maybe we should look for something in between. <laughs> and I was wondering about uh, the collection Life Watch. Yes. I'll look. <laughs> Good. Just a moment. This is a nature poem. It came out in the New Yorker. It's called Lapland. I um, I was asked to give a talk of all things in northern Finland in a place called Yveskula. And I thought, well, gosh, I'm so far north, I might as well go all the way up to the 24-hour-a-day sunland. It was the middle of the summer uh, where the laps are and the reindeer and uh, I was amazed at how extraordinarily beautiful it was and I, I took a little boat they're not called that but uh, and went down the fjords uh, and so this is essentially a very very plain nature poem I loved Robert Frost. I love Wang Wei in China. I love Machado. They're all nature poets. I grew up in New York without nature, except for Central Park and Riverside Drive Park. I reread the p 
poetry of George Seferis many years ago, and Rex Warner, who translated him from modern Greek into English, mentions that Seferis said, every poet has to find a landscape for his dreams and thoughts. He found it in Greece. Well, this is a simple example, maybe. Lapland. The roots of the earth protrude down into the pine-gray ocean and up into the glacial snow. There are not many fir trees as we push into the unreal north. We are beyond the green and on nude, scrubby earth again. Here, where snow yawns into the sea and air is clean like fish. Distance and form and seasons are more true than the odd boat or village. Time. This land is dream, planet where almost no one is, or if real, then quick cities south are dream before the slow Iceland. At night, sunshine floats on big mountain ribs of snow. Gulls cry and cod run in the ocean. Lapland, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. There were a few people on the skiff or whatever you call it. It wasn't a skiff. One was a, a beautiful none from Les Petites Sœurs de Marie, the Little Sisters of Mary. She came from a very kind of upper French family and worked in a sardine factory for two and a half years. And this was part of her summer vacation. These were kind of left-wing nuns who were believed in helping the poor or whatever it is. So she worked with the, the laps and the other people who worked in these fish factories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we really, uh, we've talked about a number of different languages about writing poetry, about mm-hmm. translations, mm-hmm. about uh, things that influenced you, uh, other poets, uh, mm-hmm. philosophers. We haven't really talked about food. Oh, well, I'm a barbarian, but I like good food. I mean, I'm a terrible cook. I make good breakfasts. <laughs> I can, I can get the pits out of cherries, but <laughs> no, I'm very interested in food actually, because food, uh, excuse my extremely bigoted notion, but when you go north in Europe. It's like eating at the Marriott Hotel. You should call the Red Cross, whether it's <laughs> Russia, England. England is changing, but uh, Scandinavia, Denmark, the breakfasts are enough to sink a, a Viking ship. <laughs> <laughs> but all the great food of Turkey and Greece and Spain and uh, Catalonia, part of Spain, Galicia, Portugal, unbeatable. Yeah, I like good Chinese food, but not bad, and I love Thai food. But generally speaking, go south. Go south, Turkey, Italy, and and let's say Thailand are my favorite foods. Have you done poems about food? No, I haven't. But I'll tell you, much of Sappho is preserved in a very important book, written in ancient times, very popular in medieval times, called uh, something like The Banquet of Kings, but that's slightly wrong. Uh, And it's quotations from ancient Greek poetry, which deal with food. And we have an enormous amount of writing about food in ancient Greek, including Sappho, who was terribly maltreated by both time, by the church, by neglect because, well, up till about 1000 AD that you would have found thousands of people who knew her complete works by heart. There was a decree to burn her. And uh, in places like the the banquet of whatever, uh, we find a lot. We also found a bunch in uh, in Northern Europe in a place called Oxyrhynchos in the 
in northern Egypt, I meant to say, in the Fayum Yar at the end of the 19th century. So that's our Sappho, 300 fragments and a few poems. Some of which uh, are part of a banquet. It's a wonderful banquet. It's a banquet of the, the great poet of antiquity was the woman Sappho. Uh, Catullus maybe is the best Latin poet. In honor of Sappho, he translated one of her most famous poems. Uh, he calls it My Lesbia, after Sappho of Lesbos. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, <laughs> living across from Babe Ruth at one point. Uh, baseball fan? Well, I was until the Yankees fell apart this season. Yes, I'm a base. Harold Bloom and I are Matt. We know all the figures of the hitters and the pitchers. Yeah, it's too bad. Even in China, the first thing I did was see how the Yankees. I love the Red Sox too, and I like the Patriots and the 49ers. And yeah, I'm a. I was a diver at Bowdoin College in Maine, and and in days when. There was absolutely no competition. I came in fifth in the New England college finals, whatever they call them. Uh-huh. I wouldn't come in millionth today, but it helped keep me in shape so that I'm a young 85. I've been around swimmers, and most of the swimmers I know will tell you about divers. And what they'll tell you about divers is they're crazy. I agree. <laughs> this sport of, of delicious ecstasy and fear. <laughs> because get closer to the board, the coach would say. Closer. <laughs> We've been talking with Willis Barnstone, and we began by, by talking about mm. him as a poet, translator, biblical scholar, memoirist, anthologist, artist. And he's all those things. And divers. <laughs> Reach for... Sappho has a beautiful phrase, I could not hold the sky in my two arms. And the whole idea of, of even thinking of it is exactly that deep, horrible, marvelous need of reaching the world. Thank you very much. You're welcome, George. <laughs> The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.